take out our Bibles this morning and hear from God. We're going to turn to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I wonder how many of you think of yourselves as being rich. Certainly, if you think in terms of the spiritual realm, every Christian has to acknowledge that God has lavished upon us the riches of his grace. We are incredibly, we are unfathomably rich. Reagan Martin reminded us of that a few weeks ago. But I'm asking this morning in terms of dollars and cents, financial worth, property owned, in terms of dollars and financial worth, are you rich? You might argue that you're not because you know a whole lot of people who've got a whole lot more than you. Many, many people in America have far more wealth than you and I put together. The lives that they live and the, the spending power they possess sometimes tempts us to envy. But the fact is that even the least wealthy among us this morning is among the richest people in the world. And James has a word that we need to listen to today. He sounds an alarm for us so that we might be able to enjoy the riches that God has entrusted us without regretting it. So let's look at what he has to say. Let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God, inspired, breathed out through the brother of the Lord Jesus, whose name is James. He writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge today we've heard a very strong word from you through James's writing instrument. We long, Father, to present to you hearts, hands, houses, investment accounts, bank accounts, savings accounts, deeds, titles, all these marks of ownership of things and property 
and finance in this world. We long to manage them for your glory. We acknowledge them as stewardship from you. We ask for your help this morning, guiding us in ways that would help us to manage what you've entrusted to us in a God-honoring way. So speak to us powerfully, Lord, as we give our attention to these words. And Lord, make us mindful of the riches that we have in Jesus. And may the riches that are in Christ be a call to those who do not profess Christ this morning that they would see in him the one who is of supreme value and eternal joy, delight, and satisfaction and flee all of the false advertisement of this world to rest in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Now think for think with me for a moment this morning in, in biblical terms of who you think of in Scripture is rich. Can you call some names to your mind of people that you would say these are some of the rich people that the Bible mentions? Who comes to your mind first? Well, the rich in the Bible certainly include Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also Joseph, who was prime minister there in Egypt and had so much clout that he could invite his family to come and live in, in the best land that they had in Goshen. Um, there's also David and Solomon. I think Boaz has to be pretty rich. And then there's Job, who had great wealth twice. And besides these, in the New Testament, you have Zacchaeus, had so much he could just give a lot back, and Lydia, who sold purple. But then there's also these non-named but designated people, the rich young ruler, the rich man who built bigger barns and died. Of course, he was a parable, but he's still somebody mentioned there. And then there's the, the rich man in front of whose house lay a beggar named Lazarus. And there's more we could probably sift through and come up with good ideas of some of the rich in the Bible. But of these, a number belong to the kingdom of God, while several clearly do not. It is clear, therefore, that not everyone who faithfully follows Jesus Christ lives in abject poverty. Some are quite wealthy, in fact. And However, clear warnings in the scripture are set before people who are of significant financial standing. Paul warns that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. He also tells Timothy to charge the rich in this present world not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They are to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Well, Jesus also talked about earthly wealth. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus also declared you cannot serve God and money. So, on the one hand, 
it is not sinful to possess wealth. But on the other hand, it is very easy, given our sinful nature, to sin with our wealth or to sin because of the desire for wealth. God is the one who entrusts wealth to us, and we are accountable to him for what we do with it. So while in the world, while the world, by and large, seeks after wealth and sets its hope on riches and what money can buy, the people of God are marked as those who set their hope on God and store up not earthly treasure, but treasure in heaven through good works. So money must not be our idol, but it is a tool entrusted to us by God to use for his glory and to do good in the name of Jesus Christ. So you could possess great riches, but live to regret it. And James is pointing to those who will. He directs his very strong words in this text to wealthy people who will live to regret their riches. They face future doom for very serious sins in regard to their wealth. And what James tells Christ followers in our text this morning then instructs us how not to regret the riches that we have. And so in order to make his case, James provides us with four important considerations. We will see miseries that are coming we will see investments that are fading, cries that are rising, and sins that are fattening. So let's look at these one at a time. First, James points us to miseries that are coming. He sounds the alarm, as he did in the previous text, calling people to come. It's like, come to your senses. Come now and appear before these truths and reckon with them. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming on you. It's unlikely that James is speaking to people that he thinks are in the church here. It's unlikely because these people appear not to be people who belong to the church. And the, the way that he speaks, he's coming across as an Old Testament prophet. If we were to thumb through some of the Old Testament prophets, we would see that James sounds a lot like some of them who in... Jerusalem or Judah or, or in Israel uh, began to speak words of denunciation against the enemy nations around them. Those nations or leaders or people in those nations may never have heard those prophecies, but they were given for even for Israel to hear that God was going to judge the nations. And here, the Bible given to us, the people of God, we're given this passage where God is telling us through James that the rich are going to face miseries horrors here for their great sin. It will happen at the great day of judgment, a day it will be, a day of regret, a day of, as he says, misery where false hopes are exposed, a day on which all the wicked will suddenly wish that they had heeded the call of the prophets who warned of coming judgment. Weeping will replace laughter, horror will replace presumption and wailing will replace the sounds of pleasure. Miseries are coming, says James. Just get, miseries are coming. They're on the way. They're in the process of coming. They're in motion. They advance every single day. Which is to say 
the day that God has appointed of judgment will not be abandoned. There's not going to be God suddenly make a U-turn in his plan. It's on the way. God has established a day of judgment. The worlds of people will be gathered before him. No one will escape. Rich and powerful who have had all the earthly advantages over others will not escape. They too will stand before the Lord who will judge. Their money and their power and their prestige allowed them to escape a whole lot of things on the earth while they live, but they will not escape God the judge. They too will stand before the Lord. And he will then separate the people into the sheep and the goats. The sheep will be gathered unto him. They will enter into the joy of the Lord, but as for the goats, their place will be in everlasting torment. And it is a place where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. These are the miseries that James is pointing to. Your money will not be able to buy your way out of hell. No more fearful place exists in all the universe than where you abide under the miseries that are appointed for the wicked. In Jesus' parable of the rich man who ignored poor old Lazarus, who sat outside his gate begging every day, this is the place to which the rich man went when he died. He was in Hades, as Jesus tells the parable, in such torment that he wanted someone to go and warn his brothers lest they make the same mistake as he and wind up in the same dreadful place. These are the miseries that are coming upon the unredeemed. Not just the unredeemed rich, but all the unredeemed. But in this message to the rich, James would have them know, as we said, your money is not going to be able to keep you out. And your money is not going to be able to give you an escape from the judgment of God that's on its way. Judgment's on its way. No one can adequately really describe these torments. We have these images. We have these words. I've used many of them. But there clearly is one message that we have from all of the painful painful expressions here is that this, if we know anything about that place and that day, we do not want to be a part of it. That's the last thing we ever want to be a part of. Nothing has ever been worse. The warning of hell should make you want to escape it whatever it costs you. It should also move believers to be urgent in warning people about the miseries that will fall not only on the wicked rich, but on everyone who has not believed in Jesus Christ. And they need to hear, at least need the opportunity to be able to hear of hope in Jesus. Jesus is the only escape from these miseries. Bad as you want to escape, there's no way to escape except Jesus. If you desire to avoid the judgment that is coming, you must take refuge in Jesus Christ by faith, by believing in him and resting in him as your refuge. In divine judgment, the miseries of God's wrath fall righteously upon sinners. All have sinned and come short of God's glory. Each of us stands condemned and worthy of just punishment. But God, being rich in mercy, offers forgiveness and deliverance from justice. He sent his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And through the cross of Christ and through his endurance of the miseries of God's wrath, God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. And by this means, 
the righteous requirement of the law for judgment in regard to those who take refuge in Jesus is fulfilled. Forgiveness is then granted to all those who turn from sin and trust in God's Son. If you have not turned to Him, I would lovingly urge you, invite you, plead with you today to flee from the miseries of God's judgment and follow Christ. Miseries are coming. From the miseries that are coming, James turns to highlight investments that are fading. This is what he's talking about in verses 2 to 3. Look what he says there. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and will. This is such vivid language. They will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid it up. You have invested. You have sought your hopes in riches. And these riches where you have invested all your hopes, they're worthless. They're already under decay. Wealth and luxury were measured back then much the same as today. What you eat, what you wear, and what you can buy. That is how much gold and silver you own. The more you have, the more you can spend. People measure their importance by their delicacies and designer labels and dollars. Their hope for recognition and status, their place in the world is determined by their wealth. But James wants us to see all of these things in light of eternity. And in light of eternity, they're all worthless. Sooner or later, all your goods in this world will be shown to be temporary and fading. Food rots. Cleaned your fridge out lately? Food rots. Clothes wear out. Thrown anything away lately? Gotten holes here or there? Moths eating your sweaters. And even money diminishes over time. That great and mighty money devourer known as inflation has reared its ugly, big ugly head lately. And what you have may look like the same, but it's not worth the same because everything costs more. Well, gold and silver do not actually corrode. Impurities within them do. But the point that James makes here in bringing up gold and silver is these are the two things you could think that you would have never, never diminish. And yet his point is, but they do. You look at eternity, you look at the judgment seat of God and gold and silver, <laughs> won't do a thing for your soul in that day. The fact that you have put your hope in them will testify against you. They will show corrosion, the corrosion of your hope because you have put it in the wrong place. In light of eternity, even gold and silver are worthless. This is the corrosion of which James speaks. He points us to the guilt of laying up earthly treasure and putting our hope in it. He's clearly not saying that we should not save money for the future, not that we shouldn't be wise with living life. I mean, the Bible is all has things everywhere about 
how you should be, you know, go to the ants you slugger. You know, you save and you prepare. And that's not what he's condemning, but he is condemning laying it up. And we would come back to the, 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 the parable that Jesus told of the rich man who just wanted more, 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 more. He, 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 he planted a field and he had such a return that his barns weren't big enough, so rather than filling his barns and seeing what good he could do with the extra, he just built more barns and kept it all to himself. He's laying it up. He is hoarding it. So this is James appearing to address the sin of hoarding our wealth, not using it wisely. He says it is corrosion and it will be evidence against us. So the fact that you have invested your life in these things is ultimately worthless and will testify against you. It is as though God will call you to account and call you to bring out that for which you have used your life. And as portrayed by the parable of the talents, the master will summon his servants to see what they have done with what he entrusted to their management. And if all you have to bring out to God is your corroded silver and gold, moth-eaten clothes, they themselves will cry out for your condemnation. This is what you valued. This is what you lived for. You have not honored God with what he has given. You have merely been a consumer and a hoarder. Your mind, your heart, your pursuits have been for yourself and the things of the world. You have loved the world and the things of the world, which John says in 1 John 1, they are passing away. They are investments which are fading. And so then in this context, James again points us to the miseries of eternal judgment. They ring through so often here. He says that the corrosion of these temporal and fading investments will eat your flesh like fire. Not only do they testify against you, they will also turn on you and consume you. Now, what does this mean for the Christian, the follower of Christ? What does this mean for us who, by our very profession, are seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? What does hearing these words mean for us? Why did James write these to the Christians? Well, it means to remind us not to be deluded by the deceitfulness of riches, particularly when we see other people flourishing. Do not envy the rich. Do not be drawn away from faithfully following Christ and be like the world because of the attractiveness of the things of this world. They do not satisfy. They do testify against us if that is where our hearts are. They do not satisfy, but they do burn you and they do destroy you. They take what is truly precious and replace it with judgment. So be warned and be steadfast in seeking first the kingdom of God. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Not, not set your mind on earthly things that are on earth. When Christ appears, remember this, we will be with him in glory. And that's what matters. That is what will never fade. Being with Christ in glory is wealth eternal and wealth beyond measure. Remember that when the allure, remember that when the allure of this world begins reaching out to you and saying, you just need, you just need more. You just need fancier. You just need more luxurious. You just need that too. Investments that are fading. We turn next to cries that are rising. 
It's not just the fact that you love the world and the things of the world. That's bad enough. But James has more to say here. When people love money and the things that it can buy, they will often resort to deceit and dishonesty as well as abuse and fraud and tyranny and taking advantage of the weak in order to get what they want. Not only do they love the world, they actually unlove people because they use people to increase their accounts. This unrighteousness does not get past the Lord. Look now at verse 4 there. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they are crying out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have cheated people. You are well off. You have hired laborers to work for you, and then you didn't pay them. Money that they desperately needed to be able to just get by from one day to the next. Here you are sitting on the, in the head of, the, of this, this operation and you have all of these things at your disposal and yet you're accumulating more off the backs of those who came to work for you with the hope that they would be able to provide for their families just the meal for tomorrow. And their cries says the Lord, are ascending, or says James, are ascending to the Lord. He hears them. He takes note of them. When the wealthy take advantage of those under their power, do not think that the Lord does not see. Do not think that he does not hear the cries and know this. He is not pleased. He, he is greatly Displeased When the cry of the Israelites went up from Egypt under the oppressive tyranny of Pharaoh, the Lord heard from heaven, and he came down to bring deliverance. When Cain killed Abel, the cry of Abel's blood went up to the Lord, and he heard, and he called Cain to account, and he cursed him. God will do the same to the rich who take advantage of their laborers. Their cries ascend before the Lord. They reach his ears and they reach his heart and the rich become like Pharaoh to the Lord. They are his enemy and he will come after him like he did, Pharaoh. When you take advantage of and when you cheat others, when you oppress those under your care, your evil deeds will rise to the hearing of the Lord and he will not sit idle cries that are rising. And again in this text, we have this cry for judgment. Again, a reminder of eternal judgment for God to respond to human evil. Murdered Abel, the Lord said to Cain, and this, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Every one of our sins cries out to God for justice. They cry for punishment. And we should be serious about that cry. But we can also be comforted about another voice that speaks. The another voice of blood. 
I'm so encouraged and in this context think how beautiful it is to think on the blood of Jesus and that it speaks. Hebrews 12.24 says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Abel testify of? Murder. What does the blood of Jesus testify of? Well, there's murder, but there's sacrifice that satisfies for sin. The sin cries for judgment. The blood of Christ cries for that, that justice has been satisfied because the, the Lamb of God has been sacrificed in the place of the person who deserved the justice. The blood that we have shed, the evil that we have done, cries from the ground, but the blood of Jesus speaks better. Our sins cry for justice, but the cry of the blood of Jesus is that justice has been satisfied. And if you are therefore in Christ, his blood declares that though your sins be as scarlet, they have been washed white. If you are in Christ, the blood shed on the cross says that you are forgiven, justified, and delivered. That's a good thing. And so in all the midst of all of this talk about judgment, we also have a precious look towards him who took our judgment for us and know that the, the miseries that should have come upon us who take refuge in him came upon him so as to shield us from them. Praise God for his generosity and his bountiful gift and his mercy given to us in Christ. Finally, we turn to James's final consideration, sins that are fattening. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. When it comes to our bodies, fattening is one thing. We shouldn't really be striving to fatten ourselves. But when it comes to a calf, to be prepared for the slaughter, fattening is another thing altogether. That's just what you want. Years ago, my parents went in with another couple and purchased a bull. Uh, the purpose was to have him processed and fill our freezers with hamburger and steaks and roast and all sorts of good stuff. And, and, and I remember going to look at Prince. He had a name. He was a huge black Angus. He was contained within a stall, and we were feeding him rich corn mix. I can still remember the smell of the corn mix that they were given to Prince. It smelled pretty sweet. Wondered, hmm, I wonder if I want to have some of that. But I definitely wanted to have what that was going towards. Prince was being fattened. And when he reached a certain weight and size, they came and loaded up Prince and took him to the slaughterhouse. And as a result, we enjoyed quality beef for a long time. The fattened calf. It's an image, an important image in the scripture. Particularly in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. When the father receives his repentant son back to his household, he celebrates. And what do they do? Well, what does he do? He calls for the best robe to be put on his son's back. He calls for a ring to be put on his finger. He's back in the family. The best shoes on his feet. And he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
The fattened calf was set aside for a time of celebration. It was fattened. The increase of fat would increase the savory quality of the meat. Fat keeps beef moist and succulent. James goes to this kind of image here to communicate to us, I think, what could be seen as two images. One very clear, the image of slaughter. The image that all of the accumulation that the wicked rich have been doing merely makes them more primed for the day of slaughter. They've only increased the demand that they face judgment. And they should flee such a day. But I think there's here a, 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 a also a, a, a note of encouragement to those who maybe have been suffering under the rich or who've been like the psalmist in Psalm 73 and almost carried away when he's looked at the riches of the rich and almost almost departed to go after them but held back because this is something that he saw that their end is a day of judgment and they will be brought to nothing and the wicked whether they're the rich in wealth or the rich in power who make life miserable on the earth, who, who murder the righteous person, condemn, one day they're going to be slaughtered and removed. And the fattened calf is going to be slaughtered. And it's a day of celebration for the people of God because it's the day when Pharaoh is toppled. It's the day when Satan is brought down completely. It's a day of delight and celebration for the people of God in the mercies and redemption and freedom that God brings. But these who are fattening themselves, just priming themselves for greater judgment, what are these sins, these sins that fatten themselves for this day? Well, James says, first, they live on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Every extra dollar raises questions like this. What can I do with this for myself? How can I increase my comfort and my pleasure? How can I boost my status in the world? It doesn't matter that a poor, disabled beggar sits outside the door of their house. It does not matter that they make life unbearably difficult for their workers. It does not matter that their actions undercut the basic necessity of life from others. All that matters is more, more power. More influence, more money, more attention. Those who question them, they in effect condemn and murder. Get out of my way. Maybe they literally killed, and maybe it's a metaphor for the fact that these rich kept others from having the necessities of life, thereby pushing them down the path of murder, killing, and they didn't actually stand in the way. They weren't actually a threat. But we see this kind of thing in our day for sure. We see it politically, we see it socially, we see it economically. It's part of the sinfulness of human beings. 
The rich in money seek more and more money. The rich in power and influence seek more power and influence. And they will compromise righteousness and destroy anyone who gets in their way. What we observe all around us is distressing and disturbing. But one of the reasons the Lord gave this text through James is so that followers of Jesus might be encouraged. God will not leave these guilty unpunished. They are being fattened for the slaughter. And we, who are the people of God, should flee from self-focused, self-indulgent, luxuriant living, where all we ask is, what else can I get? You know, one, one test here is whether you build into your budget, into your spending, and into your intentions the effort to help others, particularly the poor who are truly poor and needy. I mean, the help that the poor and lazy need is not more handouts. But there are some who are poor and truly needy, and they need help. The poor and lazy need to get hungry so that they will stop being lazy. But the neediest people in the world, who are the neediest people in the world? There's those who starve for the word Do we truly want to bless others and share our wealth in a godly way? See that they get the word of God. Amen. It's more important than their next meal. If the meal keeps them alive long enough for the word, but the word is eternal. A meal, even meals are temporal. It takes wealth to get these things done. Missions and discipleship around the world should be endeavors that we determine and delight to support. Relieving persons in their distress is an opportunity to channel God's gracious provision to those who need it. I think of the Macedonians about whom Paul spoke when he was talking to the Corinthians. They didn't have much at all, but they did have big hearts and they did have a lot of generosity. And as Paul was about to encourage the more affluent Corinthians to give generously, he pointed to the grace of God that had been given among the churches of Macedonia. And he declared that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, said Paul, and beyond their means of their own accord. They gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They wanted to be part of taking this offering, even though they themselves were destitute. This offering that was going to those in Jerusalem area who were seized with famine. Paul made the point, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You see the people James is talking about were not generous at all. They were selfish and self-serving, indulging themselves in riches, the riches of their wealth, and without a care for others except to eliminate anyone who might get in their way. That's not the way it should be with the people of the Lord. We should be freshly challenged to be thinking about our generosity and about God's entrusting to us great riches and a, a fresh sense of Am I being faithful to God with the way I manage what he's put in my possession? We've been generously blessed, and we should bless with generosity. We who live in the United States are extremely wealthy, 
in global standards. The poorest person in this room is one of the richest persons in the world. Consider this. Folks in the United States who make $40,000 a year. Folks in the United States who make $40,000 a year are wealthier than 93% of the rest of the world. Well, a person who makes 50000 is wealthier than 95% of the people in the world. If you make $100,000 a year, you are in the 99th percentile of worldly wealth. That, that's like this. If everyone in the world was divided into groups of 100 and placed according to their wealth, the person who makes $100,000 would only have one person making more than them in that group of 100. They are at the top when it comes to the world. These statistics reveal that we as Americans are among the very, for sure we are among the very richest people in the world. As Christians living in the luxury of this nation, we should see ourselves in a position of great responsibility and great opportunity. It's like, oh my goodness, I got it. No, God's not the way we should look at giving. It's like, what, not, what do I have to give? What can I give? How can I live my life in order to manage everything well? using my bounty to provide bountiful relief of the destitute and vulnerable all over the world. The ultimate giver? Well, Jesus draw, draw great attention to a widow. She didn't give that much. But she gave all she had. Two mites. Two nothings. And Jesus wanted everybody to say, look, you people who are shaking your coin bags as you drop them in the box, You've given, you may have given a greater quantity. But God doesn't look at the quantity. God looks at the sacrifice. She gave far more. But she's not the ultimate giver. Jesus is the ultimate giver. Jesus Christ is the ultimate giver about him. Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet, for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Let us follow his example and not that of those whose investments only return to bite and burn.